everybody. We're back for some with some extra credit for all you nerds out there. I'm Brian. <laughs> and I'm Munya. And, you know, we talked about the eugenics movement. And even though it got very heavy and upsetting in the last episode, I felt like we really didn't talk enough about it. And I found this account in the very excellent book that people should really read called uh, by Edwin Black called War Against the Weak. That's about America's eugenics crusade. Uh, in the new version of it, in the appendix, he has a whole new section where he talks about a recently discovered document uh, from the 1930s from Connecticut about their eugenics plan that didn't quite go into effect, but it describes the pieces of it. And Munya, you have not read this, correct? Nope, nope. I'm oh. going into this completely with a blank slate. Well... As my wife will tell you, there's nothing I enjoy more than ruining somebody's day. <laughs> so let's do it. Let's All right. go. So again, this is from Edwin Black's book, War Against the Weak. Hitler and his henchmen victimized an entire continent and exterminated millions in his quest for a so-called master race. But the concept of a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed master Nordic race was not Hitler's. The idea was created in the United States and largely cultivated in Connecticut, two to three decades before Hitler came to power. The state of Connecticut played an important, largely unknown role in America's campaign of ethnic cleansing. What's more, Connecticut was a pivotal engine in the country's eugenic nexus with Nazi Germany. In 1909, Connecticut became the fourth state to adopt eugenic laws such as forced sterilization, building on the state's 1895 marriage restriction law and the 1907 Indiana sterilization statute. By the way, from our last episode, the astute listener will have heard that California was the third state to pass a sterilization law. We now know Indiana was the first. Not shocking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Connecticut's number four. You want to guess who was number two, Munya? Was it our hometown? Washington State, baby. Yeah, there yeah. it is. Not shocking, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Progressive Washington. <laughs> Connecticut's sterilization-enabling law, short on text, was vague enough to allow ordinary staffers at two state hospitals for the insane, one at Middleton and one at Norwich, to just scrutinize a patient's family tree in deciding whether the patient would be sterilized. The number of those actually sterilized was small, just about three per 100,000 citizens. But the state's impact on policy far exceeded its numbers. Indeed, in 1919, as mass sterilization programs were contemplated for Connecticut residents, the surgical authority was expanded from the two designated steriliz sterilizing institutions to include the Mansfield State Training School and Hospital at Mansfield Depot. The 350-acre Mansfield facility was established to be a great processing center, but it never uh, implemented some of its darker designs. Eugenics coercively sterilized some 60,000 Americans— barred the marriage of untold thousands, forcibly segregated many tens of thousands in colonies, and persecuted vast numbers of Americans in ways the world is still learning. In Connecticut, only 550 to 600 persons were forcibly sterilized, but hundreds of thousands were uh, slated for the coercive surgery before the plan was abandoned. Eugenics would have been so much bizarre parlor talk had it not been for massive financing by corporate philanthropies, specifically the Carnegie Institution, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Harriman Railroad Estate. 
They were in league with America's most respected uh, scientists, hailing from such prestigious universities as Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. These academics faked and twisted data to serve the racist aims of American eugenics. They considered Connecticut both an early epicenter for eugenic propaganda and a later test case for a full-scale ethnic cleansing. The Carnegie Institution literally invented the American movement by establishing a laboratory complex at Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island. This complex stockpiled millions of index cards on ordinary Americans of color, ethnicity, and economic disadvantage. The movement's purpose? Carefully plot the removal of entire families, full bloodlines, and indeed whole peoples. Devotion to eugenics swelled with special fervor in Connecticut. Much of the spiritual guidance and political agitation for the American movement came from the American Eugenics Society based in New Haven and its affiliate, the Eugenics Research Association based in Long Island. These organizations, which functioned as part of a closely knit network, published racist eugenic newsletters and pseudoscientific journals such as Eugenical News and Eugenics and propagandized for the Nazis. While the AES was at all times a national eugenic organization, it was commonly dominated by Connecticut eugenicists, so the state's role was magnified. In the late 19th century, prestigious local physicians such as Dr. Henry M. Knight, his son Dr. George Knight, and other Knight family members in the medical profession laid the foundation for the 20th century eugenics movement that would emerge. In 1858, the elder Henry Knight had helped found the Connecticut School for Imbeciles, arguing against wasting time and money educating the students. The Knights were among the earliest proponents of confinement colonies to forcibly incarcerate the so-called feeble-minded, a never-defined, supposed mental class. They led the way in establishing the state's epileptic asylum and then lobbied energetically to pass an act concerning crimes and punishments, which criminalized marriage for people with various disabilities. Though the efforts of such medical advocates as the Knight family, Connecticut passed its sterilization law in 1909, not in the name of bias, but in the name of science. And I think this is an important point here, by the way. Mm -hmm. Like, people, when I sit here and I make jokes about fucking loving science or whatever, uh, maybe that rubs some listeners the wrong way. And, and, you know, they're like, oh, you know, that's like uh, Trump stuff or something. Yeah, yeah. But the critique here is that science is not a neutral party. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like anything in the world, science has a political character, and its political character is created by those who make up its practitioners. And in a capitalist society where access to college education, to the academy, is predicated on being rich already, you can guess what the character is the political character <laughs> of science. Right. And, you know, for those who like worship and want to hump the scientific method, all these fucking freaks that we're talking about in this that are going to try and engage in some of the most, you know, heinous fucking acts are all doing the scientific method in their own minds. Right. In the day. Right. right. And, and it's one of those things where it's like, Oh, you could say now, Oh, but they were wrong or whatever. It's like, yeah, well, every scientist believes they're right until they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like that shouldn't give you any uh feelings of comfort. Also, like uh, you know, the scientists who created the A bomb and napalm were also they were correct. Like they did make the thing and it did work. Uh it's heinous what they did. And they did it for the purpose of killing people. 
which yeah, is right. Political. Like science does not have a moral character at yeah. all. It's, it's really just like what you make of it. It's so you yeah. know to kind of uh, imply that it 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 aligns like on this like moralistic line or even partisan line is just kind of silly, right? It's just it, it just is what it is. It can be used for good and evil. Um, yeah. and you know, well, like it, w- if if you just celebrate it as just as fact, you know, you gotta you gotta you know take into account like who actually in power is going to be using science and for what. Yeah, and the thing is, is like technology. Technology also is on its own a neutral element, right? Yeah, exactly. But because it's wielded by humans, you know, the people who make up the structure, right, of technological development and you know its employment they give it a moral and political character. The society yep. it exists in gives it a moral and political character, right? And I think that uh, for liberals, trying to divorce science from that is a right-wing project <laughs> that they're right. engaging in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So eugenic rallying calls were heard everywhere in Connecticut's social worker elite. In 1910, Edwin Down, in his capacity as president of the Connecticut State Board of Charities, announced at the first annual state conference of charities and corrections that the kindest act of charity society could show to an economically disadvantaged or degenerate person was to sterilize the individual. In 1934, Connecticut Congregationalist Pastor George Reed Andrews walked away from his pulpit to assume the AES presidency, averring he could save more people through eugenics which had become his de facto religion. Pioneer German eugenicist Alfred Plotz, the man who literally founded the concept of race hygiene, that is, Nazi eugenics, first studied racial genealogy in Meridian, Connecticut, before bringing his rabid ideology back to Germany and the Nazi party. Charles Davenport, the father of organized American eugenics and the movement's scientific guru, was a Connecticut native. Davenport developed his earliest notions in the state's intellectual and medical circles, constantly churning with eugenic fascination. Davenport went on to organize the triad of raceology agencies at Cold Spring Harbor, sponsored by the Carnegie Institution. The three three entities included the Station for Experimental Biology, the Eugenics Research Association, and the Eugenics Records Office. At Cold Spring Harbor, Davenport mentored his henchman, Harry Laughlin, who functioned as superintendent of the eugenics records office, the nerve center crammed with dark brown floor-to-ceiling card files. Within those long drawers were collected endless personal records from family trees to idle gossip. It was all assembled in a delusional attempt to create authentic family pedigrees that could be judged worthy or unworthy of continued existence on Earth. Congress had christened Laughlin a federal eugenics agent during immigration control hearings that helped establish the 1924 National Origins Act. As a consequence, Laughlin designed the ethnic and genetic formulas that eventually evolved into the Third Reich's 1935 Nuremberg Race Laws. In 1937, by the way, you're going to hear a lot about these connections. (laughs) Yeah. In 1937, he received an honorary Nazi degree from the University of Heidelberg for his contribution to Hitler's war against the Jews. It was this man hallowed as a Carnegie Institution researcher who almost single-handedly transformed Connecticut into a mini-Nazi eugenic state. Laughlin's program came complete with concentration camps, de-citizenship laws, and a mass killing program designed to ethnically cleanse vast numbers of Americans. 
The state's walk towards Nazism began in late 1936, when Connecticut Governor Wilbur Cross, never trust a man named Wilbur, by the way, (laughs) commissioned Laughlin as a Carnegie expert to undertake a, quote, survey of the human resources of Connecticut. By the way, if you ever see, you know, your state doing a survey of the human resources of the state, that's when it's time to run. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a good sign. Yikes. The purpose of the survey was to bring Nazi-style ethnic cleansing to Connecticut in an organized scientific fashion, but devoid of the type of brown shirt violence that so typified Nazi Germany. Obviously, Laughlin was the perfect choice. He was, edit- he was editor of Eugenical News, a leader of the AES, and America's most accomplished authority on preparing government-backed elimination of unfit families. Connecticut's official report called upon the state's 2,400 physicians to assume personal responsibility for, quote, selection of an individual for sterilization under the state's statutes, which govern this means of preventing future degeneracy. Thus, when in social medicine, the physician works for the elimination of human defect, he performs an invaluable service. These ideas were incorporated into a formal public address that was presented to the Yale Medical School by the Eugenic Commission's chairman, former Connecticut Senator Frederick Walcott. Connecticut officials placed much of their hopes on, quote, physicians who specialize in diseases of the eye, the ear, and nervous or mental disorders, on the heart, the lungs, the digestive system, and upon crippled bodies. The plan was to eliminate the family bloodlines of anyone who was sick. Indeed, special emphasis was placed on those with even the slightest vision problems. In that regard, the nation's organized ophthalmologists had long promoted legislation to identify all those related to anyone with a vision problem so they could be rounded up, placed in camps, and their marriages prohibited or annulled. Ultimately, had the ophthalmologist been successful, anyone related to anyone with a vision problem would have been forcibly sterilized. That's us. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm I'm toast. <laughs> yep. Connecticut's survey of humans was to parallel similar biological surveys of useful plant and animal life, as its preamble makes clear. Quote, human weeds, a term popularized by eugenicist Margaret Sanger, were to be eradicated as diligently as garden weeds. Indeed, because eugenicists saw themselves as breeders and were encouraged by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, they considered the human species as one to be pruned and cultivated like any herd of cattle or field of corn. Eugenicists believed that crime, poverty, immorality, unchaste behavior, and other undesired traits were genetic and could not be stamped out unless the entire family was prevented from reproducing or otherwise eliminated from nature. Laughlin was a stickler for minute details, which he generally organized with excruciating specificity. His ethnic cleansing program from, uh, for Connecticut was not a mere outline, but rather a robustly sequenced point-by-point roadmap exhaustively enumerated in a massive five-volume report spanning hundreds of pages. It was all based on years of prior research that the Carnegie Institution's Eugenic Records Office had quietly compiled on hundreds of Connecticut families and other Americans. By the fall of 1938, the first facets of implementation had been rushed into effect by Connecticut officials. Connecticut established 21 human cross-classifications to qualify its residents for normal life or eugenic treatment. Age, for example, was cross-classified by race descent, nativity and citizenship, 
and kin and institutions. <laughs> Very cool. Just being related to someone in an institution was a mark against your reproductive record. The same racial and family linkages were measured for intelligence, honesty, decency, and any criminal record. Even before the survey was undertaken, Laughlin's proposal made clear that the targets were Negroes, Orientals, Mexicans, and others who had found their way into the United States. In the period leading up to the October 1938 report, Laughlin had discreetly surveyed 160 towns and eight counties, 46 town farms, 10 jails, 18 institutions, and many other population and residential dynamics. He also investigated eight complete Connecticut families, generation by generation, as prime examples of undesirable bloodlines. Based on Laughlin's first assessment, the state was spending 24.2% of its budget on, quote, the care, maintenance, and treatment of its socially inadequate classes. Wow, a budgetary argument for getting rid of. <laughs> you, know, you, you never hear that. No, this is this is so foreign to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing how, if you think about it, like literally all our politics are just this. Like yeah, this is just right. much more naked. But. <laughs> yeah. The first 11,962 citizens selected to be sterilized were residents of penal institutions unqualified for work, disabled, morally unacceptable, or otherwise socially inadequate. About two-thirds of those targeted were males. All were prioritized for eugenic action with one of three labels, urgent, less urgent, or undetermined. The grand total amounted to roughly 10% of the state's populace, an approach in keeping with the classic eugenic drive to eliminate the bottom 10th. Color-coded cards, white, red, and blue, were readied for each citizen. How patriotic. Yeah, wow, amazing. Laughlin's goal was to sterilize approximately 175,000 Connecticut residents, or once again, about 10% of the state's population. The state's eugenical laws did not require a court order, so eugenicists had a free hand. The Connecticut program emulated Hitler's eugenical regime, whereby doctors were required to denounce those citizens considered racially or medically unfit. The plan's most startling feature involved external and internal deportation. To save expense, large numbers of candidates would not be sterilized, but simply thrown out of the state. Immigrants would be deported to their native countries. Unfit American citizens would be declared aliens in their own country. They would then be expelled to their family's original ancestral locale. For example, <laughs> an American adjudged an unfit alien might be traced generations back to Indiana, Virginia, Kentucky, Massachusetts, or North Carolina. That person and his entire family, under the guidelines, would be rounded up and deposited into the so-called originating state. The legal and biological justification for this action was set forth in Report Volume 1 on page 53 in Section 12, entitled, quote, The Intertown and Interstate Deportation of Socially Inadequate and Handicapped Persons. So, I mean... This fucking rocks. So basically, yeah. so if we we're to just take us, right? So we both had, we both, I wear contacts, you wear glasses, right? Yep. We're yep. both fucked. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> My prescription just went up this year. Oof. Brutal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, contacts is worse because like, if you're like me, you can wear your contacts essentially forever, but they force you to go back and get an eye exam before you can like re buy like a new box. Right. Even though my, my vision hasn't changed in like 20 years. Oh, but, wow. Uh, huh. 
my I'm stably blind at this point. I, I just <laughs> got um I, for the first time I just got like a a con the contact option. So you know um I now have uh contacts. They're really hard to like put on and off. I started wearing them when I was like ten or eleven, and I think oh, that's wow. why they don't bother me. But uh, Bryn's trying to like get used to wearing them too. I think as an adult, it's if you've never worn them before, it's it's gonna be tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're hard to get used to. Um, yeah, I tried to put them on in a rush one time, and it was not it was not fun at all. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is that uh, you need them though, so that you don't get caught by the eugenic police outside. Exactly. On. Yeah. But uh, or the Khmer Rouge. Yeah. Well, the Khmer Rouge is right. So they were getting rid of academics, and that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, joking, joking. But anyways. Uh, <laughs> uh we take our sort of situation right so under this rule for you i believe the interpretation of this is you get deported back to zimbabwe right Mm -hmm. but for me hilariously they have to find my family's ins. they will not find they determine i mean let's let's not pretend they're doing any research here they determine my family's ancestral home within the united states right what so maybe i get deported to texas right or maybe i get deported to indiana where my parents are from or maybe they go back several generations back from there and I get deported back to New Jersey where like <laughs> some version of my family exists. In your Italian time. era. You yeah, become Italian ex. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we changed our name because Italians are the most prosecuted Americans, yeah. <laughs> persecuted Americans. So we have to uh, yeah. change our name. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah um, you know, I mean, an insane, insane system that they're being set up. Now, obviously the system would create problems and that why would texas want me back right yeah, like yeah. why would they accept me back uh uh and they're gonna come up with a solution to that actually oh so, okay i'm yeah. very curious in other words the joint carnegie institution connecticut plan was to create domestic refugees or displaced persons in a fashion identical to that employed by the nazis at that very moment in refugee tour in europe just as in germany Based upon the same ideals and principles, the unwanted would be stripped of their citizenship and then declared aliens to be deported. Somewhere. Legal precedents, according to Laughlin in the report, were based on Section 1690 of the 1930 Connecticut Revised Statutes, a section entitled Deportation, which called for paupers and other undesirables to be exiled from the state to their previous or ancestral locale. Ultimately, So many people would be dumped into ancestral towns and states, creating so vast a social displacement problem that concentration camps would be needed to handle the uprooted population. Property was to be seized to pay for the economic drain on the state. Once again, the process was a mere image of the genocidal Nazi program implemented against Jews. Page 56 of the report states, quote, if exile or encouraged immigration <laughs> or dumping were no longer possible due to the masses to be internally deported, American states that, quote, now permit the production of certain types of human defectives and inadequates would be compelled to consider more seriously a practical means for the reduction of their supply. Want to guess what the next section is going to be called? Uh <laughs> Reduction of supply. <laughs> what, what, yeah. what's the what, next like, what could called? that possibly mean, right? Yeah, yeah. 
The next page itemized five special remedies for population control. These included segregation in camps, forced exile, sterilization, and marriage prohibition. Item five was entitled Euthanasia. Ah, wow. Laughlin explained, quote, In some communities, mercy death has been advocated in certain extreme cases, but the modern American state has not yet worked out due process of law, nor has it yet decided on who should sit in judgment. He's like he's like those cops in like an 80s movie when the US was like imprisoning record numbers of people was like, we just can't do it. We just can't enforce the law, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All those liberal hippies, you know. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, due process of law won't allow can't us to just do our job. Yeah, I can't even run a mobile gas van because of due process <laughs> of law. <laughs> he went on to suggest, quote, the legality and protection finally found in the eugenical sterilization laws after 20 years of experimental legislation gives some hope that a similarly sound basis for euthanasia might be worked out for states or communities which desire it. Inevitably, the concentration camps for deportees to be set up in North Carolina, Kentucky, Indiana, and other states of defective human origination were to be converted into eugenicide mills, that is, death camps. Whether these death camps were to be operated in Connecticut or the state receiving the expelled aliens was a detail to be worked out by, quote, interstate treaties. These treaties would be engineered by like-minded eugenic advocates in the legislatures of Connecticut and the recipient states, such as North Carolina and Virginia, using the robust interstate cooperation model perfected during the quest to achieve mass sterilization. To that end, on page 66 in a section headed Needed Researches, uh, Project 8, Euthanasia, Mercy, Death, the task was set <laughs> forth, quote, compile and analyze all past and existing statutes of all nations which bear upon the subject. During these same days, the Third Reich was considering a program which was ultimately launched the next year in 1939 under the code name T4. Under T4, Nazi doctors gassed tens of thousands of so-called defectives. One of the nations Laughlin was always willing to proffer as a shining example in his deliberations and suggestions was Nazi Germany. As Laughlin's report to Connecticut's governor trumpeted, the elimination or reduction of members of degenerate human stocks was the social imperative. Since the first years of the 20th century, euthanasia had always been the official holy grail of the American eugenics movement. Gas was the preferred method. In 1906, the first eugenicide legislation was proposed in the Ohio legislature. Iowa also tried to pass such legislation. In 1912, the Carnegie Institution at the First International Eugenics uh, Congress held in London established euthanasia as official doctrine within the movement. Creating the legal underpinnings for systemic extermination uh, was a constant struggle for advocates. Until euthanasia could be legalized, Uh, sterilization, segregation, and or deportation would have to suffice. Connecticut officials wasted no time. One Connecticut town, Rocky Hill, was selected as a model for biological surveillance. Nearly all of the town's 2,190 citizens were registered and almost half fingerprinted. A proposed racial registration card for IBM technology was part of the state's study, IBM had established a record as expert in deadly population control, designing and executing Hitler's efforts to identify Jews, find their assets, and deport them. Ironically, IBM's Nazi technology was actually first tested by the company in a pilot program in Jamaica in 1928, five years before the Hitler regime. Whoa. 
Yeah, that was the one that we talked about in the previous episode that uh, Cold Spring Harbor set up in Jamaica to explore maybe eliminating every person of African descent off the face of the earth. It's just a <laughs> test waters. Yeah, cool shit, right? The Car- <laughs> yeah, the Carnegie Institution's 1928 Jamaica Race Crossing Project introduced the race classification card that evolved into the SS card that IBM used in Germany. The Jamaica Race Crossing Project was the first step in a plan to wipe out all black people on Earth. Indeed, the American eugenics movement was less successful precisely because it lacked the punch card technology that IBM so carefully developed for the Nazi eugenic and extermination campaigns. Connecticut's project was never implemented on the scope desired, not much beyond the first surveillance steps taken in Rocky Hill. Governor Cross lost his 1938 re-election bid, With Cross out of office, Connecticut cast aside Laughlin's project. Just a few copies of the full secret report were ever circulated. State officials hoped no one would ever discover their plans. So, I think sometimes people like to think, oh yeah, the U.S. dabbled in eugenics, which is a lie, but dabbled in eugenics. But it never got out of hand, right? And I don't think they understand how close it was to getting... (laughs) You know, I mean, first off, sterilizing 60,000 people, I think, is out of hand. That is out of hand, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, how close it was to just doing, you know, Nazi Germany part two, right? Right. And, yeah. I mean, it was shockingly close. Like, it's it's not really a hyperbole to say that. I think it's actually very reasonable given this information that, you know, we're on that path. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's important a lot of times, I mean, particularly in liberal circles, uh, there's this push to basically say that like, oh, racism is the product of ignorance, right? You know, this is just country bumpkins or hillbillies or whatever, and they're just ignorant. And if they just got some education, right? Yep. And as we read through this section, certain things just kept popping up over and over again, like Yale University, right? You know, <laughs> um, you know the United States Health Service, right? Uh, the Carnegie Institution, the Rockefeller Foundation. And what you realize is that racism is actually very much a top-down project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what liberals are reacting to is basically the like <laughs> end of the river when like racism mm-hmm. flows through the top all the way to the bottom, reacting to like the rubes who are you know like sucking up like Fox News or their racist uncle or whatever. But like that that comes from somewhere, and it's mm-hmm. not it's not just burst out of nowhere. That's like that's an end result of you know, like rich elite institutions and highly educated people who yeah. are kind of creating that. Well, it, it, it brings to mind uh, a phenomenon, not just in Seattle, but very visible in Seattle, of the wealthy segregated neighborhood in Seattle with the proud display of, uh, you know, in this house, we believe Black yeah, Lives Matter refugees are people or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you believe that until one of them moves next door to you and then you <laughs> launch a massive like next door campaign against them. <laughs> and I think it goes to show that like a lot of things, like liberal complaints about Donald Trump, they're not really based in politics, right? Because they agree with everything Donald Trump believes politically, they're really based in manners, right? And yeah, so when they complain right. about like the hillbilly racist hillbillies or whatever, what they're really saying is that's not the kind of racism I like. I like I like the Yale based scientific racism. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would talk about IQ scores and things like that. <laughs> and you just keep going on about whatever dumb thing. And I mean, I it, it's one of those things of 
it raises the question, and I think that we're trying to answer in our show, which is, can capitalism exist without racism? Right. Right. You know, is this a fundamental technology of capitalist exploitation? Mm-hmm. And I do think that that is a valid question that we should, you know, raise on the left, right? And people do, but it's it's one of those things that we should always sort of put forward of. Race is not an accident that just happens because somebody just didn't get enough uh, hugs as a kid or didn't go to enough, didn't get enough college courses, right? Yeah. You know, um, racism is a, an institutional feature and not a bug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think given the involvement of things like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Institute, etc., in the creation of the eugenics program, I think we can also draw some parallels to something that we talk about on Mechanical Freak quite a bit, which is what the fuck the Gates Foundation does around the world. Exactly. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, and, the Gates Foundation and like and similarly to like, you know, the Carnegie's and everything, it's like, you know, if that's what like rich foundations like historically do. Um, I mean, it's really hard for me to talk about the Gates Foundation in 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 like explicit seriousness with a lot of people because i mean i would get pushed back saying oh what you think like bill gates is just the joker just wants to see mm-hmm. like you know people just die just because of it like you know it's just like this madman and it's like well you know i mean what 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 is what what is the eugenics movement then like what mm-hmm. is um the idea of controlling population right or sterilization you know um that that it doesn't just come from this just uh it doesn't come from nowhere right it, it and it does actually have there's material vested interest you know uh within capital um for those systems to be you know implemented but it's just like it sounds so out there that like it's easy to knee jerk say it's oh it's unbelievable that you know Bill Gates will be maybe like a Malthusian or maybe subscribes to these eugenic ideas. But, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what else to call a sterilization campaign or, you yeah. know, just 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 the idea of population is the problem to solve climate change. I mean, what is yeah. the solution there? Right. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, population is the problem, of course, not the population of billionaires like Gates himself, who <laughs> his carbon footprint is equal to like millions of people you know, around the world. Somehow it's the population of people in Africa, people in India, and at some point you ask, what's the difference between what he's the shit he spews and the shit that was going on in the eugenics movement? And right. you pretty much come to the answer, nothing. There's literally no difference, right? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for a lot of these people like Bill Gates or whatever, it's like, does he personally want to see these people killed? I don't know if he personally wants to be there or not when it happens. Maybe that's yeah, up in the yeah, air. Yeah, he's not going to like, you know? I, I don't he, know if he wants to like, you know, like stand over them like emperor yeah. and like watch their heads go off or something, right? Yeah. Like, but. But I think it's very clear from his language and the projects that he engages in that he wants these people to go away. Like, yeah. and, you know, I don't know how, you know, there's obviously no way to interpret that other than he wants them, you know, to be killed, right? But like, you know, for Holocaust deniers, they'll point to like, where's the uh, official Nazi edict saying like, hey, like, where show me in writing where Hitler's like, hey, let's do the Holocaust, guys. <laughs> and like, high five, you know, <laughs> and the thing is, it's like, yeah, these you know, people are generally smart enough not to at that level to not say like, hey, we're just going to go ahead and eradicate this like whole population. They just do it. 
right? And they do it right. through the banal language of, you know, bureaucrats, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's some wonderful food for thought for people, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and the thing is, is, these institutions, I mean, this is the question of why these institutions hold so much power in the first place, which is, goes back to the thing we talked about about science, right? Which is, and an institution, a bureaucratic structure, which is all an institution is, again, has no political character until it's staffed with people and funded by people. And then it, yeah. it basically has the character of that staff and that money. And, you know, that's a fundamentally, you know, something like the Gates Foundation is a fundamentally undemocratic institution. And it's something that by its very nature and existence institutionally is incapable of doing good in the world. Right. And, therefore should be resisted and demanded that it be disbanded yeah it's it's like a neo-colonial institution i mean what else do you call a rich a rich american or rich person from the west a white person um going into the third world and dictating uh policy dictating how their education is taught um you know funding organizations uh that support their interests and ideas right Mm -hmm. and then saying like this is the way it ought to be um this is the way that your sewage should work even right um and leveraging that power i mean what else do you call that but like a neo-colonial like undemocratic institution you know exactly exactly well We'll go ahead and leave it at that. We'll see everybody next week. We're going to be talking travel restrictions. Uh, We're going to learn all about the passport office just in time for uh, a new set of travel restrictions, I'm sure, to come down because of COVID. (laughs) Just in time for vaccination restrictions to become permanent, a permanent travel restriction, (laughs) uh, permanent feature of life in this country. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, shout out to Novak Djokovic trapped in Australia currently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will the Australian Open happen? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Honestly, just, you know, tennis is like golf. Just end it. <laughs> Let's use this opportunity to just say we're not going to do tennis anymore. Yeah. <laughs> All tennis courts should be turned into basketball courts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, Serena will retire as the GOAT and never can anyone pass her. So I, I support that. Yeah, exactly. By the way, mm-hmm. I you know, I'm not gonna watch it, but uh I know they made like this hagiograph you know, hagiographic yeah, film. Yeah. yeah, uh that is going to justify the exploitation of children to uh <laughs> live out your failed sports dreams as an adult. And uh yeah, that's gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's bad. Serena Williams is a very good tennis player. What it takes to be a great athlete today is fucking disgusting, though. It is. No, it is. It really I mean, is. It's cr- it was crazy to see. I, I watched the movie, you know, and it's like, mm. uh, it's crazy to see, like, what it takes to become an athlete. You basically have to go pro at, like, 13, 14. Yeah. Like, you're playing on, like, a big stage during that time. So, I mean, imagine you have to basically raise your kids to, you know, be athletes at that time. Like, when yeah. they're, like, you know, six and stuff like that's like a lifelong project yeah one day we'll get into uh yeah we'll we'll, we'll launch our always threatened sports podcast and uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about texas quarterback camps and things like that like oh man I mean, those must be just insane yeah, it's really any sport but like to to reach the level uh that major athletes are at today essentially means signing away any 
other potential like aspect of your life personality being whatever yeah at yeah. a criminally young age of like five <laughs> yeah cases, you know uh really really disgusting um but yeah yeah sports sucks guys i hate to tell yeah. you hate it yeah. i still watch it but <laughs> yeah still, i mean still, love to watch it watch, love to, still gonna watch it. this shit yeah <laughs> 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 i'm gonna keep it real with you chief i'm, I'm, I'm still watching <laughs> i like you know every week i mean this week especially uh the nfl has been especially disgusting and hard to deal with but you know what i'm gonna do this weekend we were fucking watching nfl God you know it. sunday is sunday any given sunday including a out you know an outbreak you got it you got it all right man we'll leave it at that see everybody <laughs> next week all right see bye. you guys dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos junto a activistas aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido